Hey all, and welcome to Chapterwise, where I take public domain or other authorized use works of fiction and narrate them for you one chapter at a time. If you like what you hear, please follow my channel. If you love what you hear, please consider supporting my channel. And if you're already a supporter, thank you so much. Your support is what allows me to keep putting more content here for everyone to enjoy. Now, on to what you came here for. Your chapter for today. Vendetta, or a story of one forgotten, by Marie Corelli. Original publication date, 1886. Chapter 22 Christmas Eve. The day had been extra chilly with frequent showers of stinging rain, but toward five o'clock in the afternoon the weather cleared. The clouds, which had been of a dull uniform gray, began to break asunder and disclose little shining rifts of pale blue and bright gold. The sea looked like a wide satin ribbon, shaken out and shimmering with opaline tints. Flower girls trooped forth, making the air musical with their mellow cries of Fiori, Civol Fiori, and holding up their tempting wares. Not bunches of holly and mistletoe, such as are known in England, but roses, lilies, jonquils, and sweet daffodils. The shops were brilliant with bouquets and baskets of fruits and flowers, a glittering show of entrants, or gifts to suit all ages and conditions, were set forth in tempting array, from a box of bonbons costing one franc to a jeweled tiara worth a million. While in many of the windows were displayed models of the Bethlehem with babe Jesus lying in his manger for the benefit of the round-eyed children who, after staring fondly at his waxen image for some time, would run off hand in hand to the nearest church, where the usual Christmas crash was arranged, and there kneeling down would begin to implore their dear little Jesus, their own little brother, not to forget them, with a simplicity of belief that was as touching as it was unaffected. I am told that in England, the principal sight on Christmas Eve are the shops of the butchers and poulterers, hung with the dead carcasses of animals newly slaughtered, in whose mouths are thrust bunches of prickly holly, at which agreeable spectacle the passers-by gape with gluttonous approval. Surely there is nothing graceful about such a commemoration of the birth of Christ as this. Nothing picturesque, nothing poetic, nothing even orthodox, for Christ was born in the East and the Orientals are very small eaters and are particularly sparing in the use of meat. One wonders what such an unusual display of vulgar victuals has to do with the coming of the Savior, who arrived among us in such poor estate that even a decent roof was denied to him. Perhaps, though, the English people read their Gospels in a way of their own, and understood that the wise men of the East, who are supposed to have brought the divine child symbolic gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, really brought joints of beef, turkeys, and plum pudding, that vile and indigestible mixture at which an Italian shrugs his shoulders in visible disgust. There is something barbaric, I suppose, in the British customs still, something that reminds one of their ancient condition when the Romans conquered them, when their supreme idea of enjoyment was to have an ox roasted whole before them while they drank wassail till they groveled under their own tables in a worse condition than overfed swine. 
Coarse and vulgar plenty is still the leading characteristic at the dinners of English or American parvenu. They have scarcely any idea of the refinements that can be imparted to the prosaic necessity of eating, of the many little graces of the table that are understood in part by the French, but that perhaps never reach such absolute perfection of taste and skill as at the banquets of a cultured and clever Italian noble. Some of these are veritable feasts of the gods and would do honor to the fabled Olympus, and such a one I had prepared for Guido Ferrari as a greeting to him on his return from Rome. A feast of welcome and farewell. All the resources of the hotel at which I stayed had been brought into requisition. The chef, a famous cordon bleu, had transferred the work of the usual table d'hôte to his underlings and had bent the powers of his culinary intelligence solely on the production of the magnificent dinner I had ordered. The landlord, in spite of himself, broke into exclamations of wonder and awe as he listened to and wrote down my commands for different wines of the rarest kinds and choicest vintages. The servants rushed hither and thither to obey my various behests, with looks of immense importance. The head waiter, a superb official who prided himself on his artistic taste, took the laying out of the table under his entire superintendence, and nothing was talked of or thought of for the time but the grandeur of my proposed entertainment. About six o'clock I sent my carriage down to the railway station to meet Ferrari as I had arranged, and then, at my landlord's invitation, I went to survey the stage that was prepared for one important scene of my drama, to see if the scenery, sidelights, and general effects were all in working order. To avoid disarranging my own apartments, I had chosen for my dinner party a room on the ground floor of the hotel, which was often let out for marriage breakfasts and other purposes of the like kind. It was octagonal in shape, not too large, and I had had it most exquisitely decorated for the occasion. The walls were hung with draperies of gold-colored silk and crimson velvet, interspersed here and there with long mirrors, which were ornamented with crystal candelabra, in which twinkled hundreds of lights under rose-tinted glass shades. At the back of the room a miniature conservatory was displayed to view, full of rare ferns and subtly perfumed exotics, in the center of which a fountain rose and fell with regular and melodious murmur. Here, later on, a band of stringed instruments and a choir of boys' voices were to be stationed, so that sweet music might be heard and felt without the performers being visible. One, and one only, of the long French windows of the room was left uncurtained. It was simply draped with velvet as one drapes a choice picture, and through it the eyes rested on a perfect view of the Bay of Naples, white with the wintry moonlight. The dinner table laid for fifteen persons, glittered with sumptuous appointments of silver, Venetian glass, and the rarest flowers. The floor was carpeted with a velvet pile in which some grains of ambergris had been scattered, so that in walking the feet sunk, as it were, into a bed of moss rich with the odors of a thousand spring blossoms. The very chairs wherein my guests were to seat themselves were of a luxurious shape and softly stuffed, so that one could lean back in them or recline at ease. In short, everything was arranged with a lavish splendor almost befitting the banquet of an eastern monarch, 
and yet with such accurate taste that there was no detail one could have wished omitted. I was thoroughly satisfied, but as I know what an unwise plan it is to praise servants too highly for doing well what they are expressly paid to do, I intimated my satisfaction to my landlord by a mere careless nod and smile of approval. He, who waited on my every gesture with abject humility, received this sign of condescension with as much delight as though it had come from the king himself. And I could easily see that the very fact of my showing no enthusiasm at the result of his labors made him consider me a greater man than ever. I now went to my own apartments to don my evening attire. I found Vincenzo brushing every speck of dust from my dress coat with careful nicety. He had already arranged the other articles of costume neatly on my bed ready for wear. I unlocked a dressing case and took from thence three studs, each one formed of a single brilliant of rare clearness and lusters, and handed them to him to fix in my shirt front. While he was polishing these admiringly on his coat sleeve, I watched him earnestly. Then I suddenly addressed him. Vincenzo, he started. Excellenza? Tonight you will stand behind my chair and assist in serving the wine. Yes, Excellenza. You will? I continued. Attend particularly to Signor Ferrari, who will sit at my right hand. Take care that his glass is never empty. Yes, Excellenza. Whatever may be said or done, I went on quietly, you will show no sign of alarm or surprise. From the commencement of dinner till I tell you to move, remember your place is fixed by me. The honest fellow looked a little puzzled, but replied as before, Yes, Excellenza. I smiled, and advancing, laid my hand on his arm. How about the pistols, Vincenzo? They are cleaned and ready for use, Excellenza, he replied. I have placed them in your cabinet. That is well, I said with a satisfied gesture. You can leave me and arrange the salon for the reception of my friends. He disappeared, and I busied myself with my toilet, about which I was for once unusually particular. The conventional dress suit is not very becoming, yet there are a few men here and there who look well in it and who, in spite of similarity in attire, will never be mistaken for waiters. Others there are who, passable in appearance when clad in their ordinary garments, reach the very acme of plebeianism when they clothe themselves in the unaccommodating evening dress. Fortunately, I happened to be one of the former class. The somber black, the broad white display of starched shirt front and neat tie became me. Almost too well, I thought. It would have been better for my purposes if I could have feigned an aspect of greater age and weightier gravity. I had scarcely finished my toilet when the rumbling of wheels in the courtyard outside made the hot blood rush to my face and my heart beat with feverish excitement. I left my dressing room, however, with a composed countenance and calm step, and entered my private salon just as its doors were flung open and Signor Ferrari was announced. He entered smiling. His face was alight with good humor and glad anticipation. He looked handsomer than usual. Ecomica, he cried, seizing my hands enthusiastically in his own. My dear Conte, I am delighted to see you. What an excellent fellow you are, a kind of amiable Arabian Nights genius who occupies himself in making mortals happy. And how are you? You look remarkably well. I can return the compliment, 
I said gaily. You are more of an Antonist than ever. He laughed, well pleased, and sat down, drawing off his gloves and loosening his traveling overcoat. Well, I suppose plenty of cash puts a man in good humor, and therefore in good condition, he replied. But my dear fellow, you are dressed for dinner. Que pro chevalier! I'm positively unfit to be in your company. You insisted that I should come to you directly on my arrival. But I really must change my apparel. Your man took my valise. In it are my dress clothes. I shall not be ten minutes putting them on. Take a glass of wine first, I said, pouring out some of his favorite Montpelluciano. There is plenty of time. It is barely seven, and we do not dine till eight. He took the wine from my hand and smiled. I returned the smile, adding, It gives me great pleasure to receive you, Ferrari. I have been impatient for your return, almost as impatient as... He paused in the act of drinking, and his eyes flashed delightedly. As she has. Piccinina. How I long to see her again. I swear to you, Amico, I should have gone straight to the Villa Romani had I obeyed my own impulse. But I had promised you to come here, and on the whole, the evening will do as well and he laughed with a covert meaning in his laughter. Perhaps better. My hands clinched, but I said with forced gaiety, Ma certamente. The evening will be much better. Is it not Byron who says that women, like stars, look best at night? You will find her the same as ever, perfectly well and perfectly charming. It must be her pure and candid soul that makes her face so fair. It may be a relief to your mind to know that I am the only man she has allowed to visit her during your absence. Thank God for that, cried Ferrari devoutly as he tossed off his wine. And now tell me, my dear Conte, what bacchanalians are coming tonight? Per Dio, after all I am more in the humor for dinner than lovemaking. I burst out laughing harshly. Of course, every sensible man prefers good eating even to good women. Who are my guests, you ask? I believe you know them all. First, there is the Duca Filippo Marina. By heaven, interrupted Guido, an absolute gentleman who by his manner seems to challenge the universe to disprove his dignity. Can he unbend so far as to partake of food in public? My dear Conte, you should have asked him that question. Then, I went on not heeding this interruption, Signor Fraschetti, and the Marchese Giuliano. Giuliano drinks deep, laughed Ferrari, and should he mix his wines, you will find him ready to stab all the waiters before the dinner is half over. In mixing wines, I returned coolly, he will but imitate your example, caro mio. Ah, but I can stand it, he said. He cannot. Few Neapolitans are like me. I watched him narrowly and went on with the list of my invited guests. After these comes the Capitano Luigi Freccia. What? The raging fire-eater? exclaimed Guido. He who at every second word raps out a pagan or Christian oath and cannot for his life tell any difference between the two. And the illustrious gentlemen, Crispiano Dolci and Antonio Biscardi. Artists like yourself, I continued. He frowned slightly, then smiled. I wish them good appetites. Time was when I envied their skill. Now I can afford to be generous. They're welcome to the whole field of art as far as I am concerned. I have said farewell to the brush and palette. I shall never paint again. True enough, I thought. 
eyeing the shapely white hand with which he just then stroked his dark mustache, the same hand on which my family diamond ring glittered like a star. He looked up suddenly. Go on, Conte, I'm all impatience. Who comes next? More fire-eaters, I suppose you will call them, I answered. And French fire-eaters, too. Monsieur le Marquis Davencourt and le beau capitaine Eugène Delmal. Ferrari looked astonished. Perbacco, he exclaimed. Two noted Paris duelists. Why, what need have you of such valorous associates? I confess your choice surprises me. I understood them to be your friends, I said composedly. If you remember, you introduced me to them. I know nothing of the gentlemen beyond that they appear to be pleasant fellows and good talkers. As for their reputed skill, I'm inclined to set that down to a mere rumor. At any rate, my dinner table will scarcely provide a field for the display of swordsmanship. Guido laughed. Well, no. But these fellows would like to make it one. Why, they will pick a quarrel for the mere lifting of an eyebrow. And the rest of your company? Are the inseparable brother sculptors Carlo and Francesco Respetti, Chevalier Mancini, scientist and man of letters, Luciano Salustri, poet and musician, and the fascinating Marchese Ippolito Galdro, whose conversation, as you know, is more entrancing than the voice of Adelina Pazzi. I have only to add, and I smiled half-mockingly, the name of Signor Guido Ferrari, true friend and loyal lover, and the party is complete. Altro, fifteen in all, including yourself, said Ferrari gaily, enumerating them on his fingers. Per la madre de Dio, with such a goodly company and a host, who entertains in Roy, we shall pass a merry time of it. And did you, Amico, actually organize this banquet merely to welcome back so unworthy a person as myself? Solely and entirely for that reason, I replied. He jumped up from his chair and clapped his two hands on my shoulders. Ah, la bonheur! But why, in the name of the saints or the devil, have you taken such a fancy to me? Why have I taken such a fancy to you? I repeated slowly. My dear Ferrari, I am surely not alone in my admiration of your high qualities. Does not everyone like you? Are you not a universal favorite? Do you not tell me that your late friend the Count Romani held you as the dearest to him in the world after his wife? Ebbene, why underrate yourself? He let his hands fall slowly from my shoulders and a look of pain contracted his features. After a little silence, he said, Fabio again, how his name and memory haunt me. I told you he was a fool. It was part of his folly that he loved me too well, perhaps. Do you know I have thought of him very much lately? Indeed, and I feigned to be absorbed in fixing a star like Japonica in my buttonhole. How is that? A grave and meditative look softened the usually defiant brilliancy of his eyes. I saw my uncle die, he continued, speaking in a low tone. He was an old man and had very little strength left. Yet his battle with death was horrible. Horrible. I see him yet, his yellow, convulsed face, his twisted limbs, his claw-like hands tearing at the empty air. Then the ghastly grim and dropped jaw, the wide-open glazed eyes. Ugh, it sickens me. 
Well, well, I said in a soothing way, still busying myself with the arrangement of my buttonhole and secretly wondering what new emotion was at work in the volatile mind of my victim. No doubt it was distressing to witness, but you could not have been very sorry. He was an old man, and though it is a platitude not worth repeating, we must all die. Sorry, exclaimed Ferrari, talking almost more to himself than to me. I was glad. He was an old scoundrel, deeply dyed in every sort of social villainy. No, I was not sorry. Only, as I watched him in his frantic struggle, fighting furiously for each fresh gasp of breath, I thought, I know not why, of Fabio. Profoundly astonished, but concealing my astonishment under an air of indifference, I began to laugh. Upon my word, Ferrari, pardon me for saying so, but the air of Rome seems to have somewhat obscured your mind. I confess I cannot follow your meaning. He sighed uneasily. I dare say not. I scarce can follow it myself. But if it was so hard for an old man to writhe himself out of life, what must it have been for Fabio? We were students together. We used to walk with our arms round each other's necks like schoolgirls, and he was young and full of vitality, physically stronger, too, than I am. He must have battled for life with every nerve and sinew stretched to almost breaking. He stopped and shuddered. By heaven, death should be made easier for us. It is a frightful thing. A contemptuous pity arose in me. Was he coward as well as traitor? I touched him lightly on the arm. Excuse me, my young friend, if I say frankly that your dismal conversation is slightly fatiguing. I cannot accept it as a suitable preparation for dinner. And permit me to remind you that you have still to dress. The gentle satire of my tone made him look up and smile. His face cleared and he passed his hand over his forehead as though he swept it free from some unpleasant thought. I believe I am nervous, he said with a half-laugh. For the last few hours I have had all sorts of uncomfortable presentiments and forebodings. No wonder, I returned carelessly, with such a spectacle as you have described before the eyes of your memory. The eternal city savors somewhat disagreeably of graves. Shake the dust of the Caesars from your feet and enjoy your life while it lasts. Excellent advice, he said smiling, and not difficult to follow. Now to attire for the festival. Have I your permission? I touched the bell which summoned Vincenzo and bade him wait on Signor Ferrari's orders. Guido disappeared under his escort, giving me a laughing nod of salutation as he left the room. I watched his retiring figure with a strange pitifulness, the first emotion of the kind that had awakened in me for him since I learned his treachery. His allusion to that time when we had been students together when we had walked with arms round each other's necks like schoolgirls, as he said, had touched me more closely than I cared to realize. It was true. We had been happy then, two careless youths with all the world like an untrodden race course before us. She had not then darkened the heaven of our confidence. She had not come with her false fair face to make of me a blind doting madman and to transform him into a liar and hypocrite. It was all her fault, all the misery and horror. She was the blight on our lives. She merited the heaviest punishment, and she would receive it. 
Yet, would to God we had neither of us ever seen her. Her beauty, like a sword, had severed the bonds of friendship that, after all, when it does exist between two men, is better and braver than the love of woman. However, all regrets were unavailing now. The evil was done, and there was no undoing it. I had little time left me for reflection. Each moment that passed brought me nearer to the end I had planned and foreseen. That's it for today's chapter, everyone. Thanks for coming along on the ride. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please consider supporting my channel. And as always, whatever platform you're listening on, just know that I deeply appreciate the time you spend with me here. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. See you next time.